In a few short weeks, Missouri legislators will return to Jefferson City to debate a gun bill and legislation implementing a photo ID requirement to vote. And State Representative Stacey Newman plans to be a loud voice against both measures. The Richmond Heights Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six, five, five four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is colleague Joe Manis. And returning to our show for the second time, our, our very special guest from the, the wonderful world of Richmond Heights. <laughs> State Representative Stacey Newman. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is kind of a pre-veto session special. We had uh, Senator Paul Whelan the last time to represent the Republican side, and the state representative here will represent the entire Democratic side. Yeah, we're basically trying to get people who are actually going to be in the middle of stuff yeah. <laughs> during veto session. Yeah. And so you thought of me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> we, 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 we thought you would be perfect for this because veto session is going to be there's a lot of little issues that come up during veto session, but the but two the, big ones right. are, are, are issues that you've been dealing with your entire political career. There is a multifaceted firearms bill, which Joe will explain in a minute, and an implementation for a photo identification requirement, two issues I know you are very passionate about. So let's get right to it. Um, we'll, we'll start with the, the firearms bill. Joe, do you want to just explain what's in this, okay. this legislation? There's a whole bunch of stuff in this legislation. And among other things, um, it basically gets rid of the permit system for concealed carry so people can can carry concealed weapons and anybody uh i mean presumably if you're a felon somebody catches you with them but the point is anybody can carry a concealed weapon unless proven otherwise and it also has a rather controversial stand your ground provision that um representative newman understands the debate pretty well on both sides it's it's basically says that if somebody is on a street or any public place, and they feel threatened, they can shoot somebody. And now the backers say there's other provisions in state law to make it clear that you just can't shoot somebody for nothing. You've got some opponents, including Representative Newman, who have said, no, the way this is worded, anybody could shoot somebody. And this came up during the, the floor debate in the House. There's also some other technical issues dealing with um, uh, it expands the castle doctrine to people who are in your house, not just not just the owners, but other people who might be in your house uh, voluntarily. So if they if somebody breaks in, they could shoot somebody and they would be uh, have the same um, freedom that you would have as far as protecting yourself in the house right so there's a number th those are three of the key provisions I'm, I'm probably missing some representative newman is very um was very involved in the house debate so you're aware of it there are veto-proof majorities on from the republicans in both the house and the senate the question is whether or not in the senate side there's a filibuster enough to block it or if some of the sheriffs and some other groups who have come out against it 
managed to sway a few senators. I think in the House there were so many, I think it's almost impossible for the Democrats to – am I right? For you're, the you're right. Plus there was a few members that were absent. So, yes, right. it's going to be much harder to sustain the veto in the House. And as you said, it was um, – party it's a party line vote um, in the Senate um, and therefore you know we would need two of the senators to actually either uh, not be there for that vote or to to change their vote okay so did I describe the bill right is there any other provisions that you think well need to be along highlighted? with the um, along with doing away with the permit um, you know requirement for to be able to carry your your gun concealed it also does away with the training requirements because the training was what the permit was based on so therefore um any one of us here could go online here in about five minutes buy as many weapons as we want as much ammunition as we want with no questions asked and then we would be able to carry that gun if it fit in our pocket um, anywhere that conceal and carry is legal uh, and right now there's there's specific places, um, including um, the legislature. Uh, members of the legislature and their staff can carry concealed weapons in the state capitol. Right now, no one else, just them. So uh, under this new you know, bill, you wouldn't even have to have any training, which is where law enforcement has completely come out in terms of this is the first time in my memory that even the uh, statewide police chiefs have weighed in on a firearm bill um, along with the fraternal order of police this is statewide have said that those losing the training and, and permit requirements actually now makes this very dangerous for law enforcement not just the rest of us but actually law enforcement because already they're having to approach every situation um, you know whether it be a traffic stop or, or anything um, is that everyone is armed now I know that Joe followed this debate closer than me but when we've had people on our show explain why they think this bill was necessary they say and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here there shouldn't be any fees or requirements or regulations around what they feel is a constitutional right. You've I mean, you probably heard all the arguments for this bill. That one, I think, is kind of the genesis of why it, it came to be. What do you kind of make of well, that? Well, if, if that actually was true, now, of course, you need you would need a judge to weigh in on the constitutionality of a, of a fee. Um, but, you know, there, there are plenty of states that require fees and permits and, and tra have training requirements. Again, there's a you know, cost involved. If, so if that argument was really valid, you would, have, you would have seen a case, you would have seen a judge rule that, no, that, you know, that's unconstitutional. So that's, that's clearly false. But you know, we go back and forth between that argument about constitution and your right to, to, to d defense, which, again, you already have. And to me, the other side of the coin is the number of fatalities. It goes back to human lives. How many human lives are we willing to trade for your right to protect yourself, which you already have? So, you know, again, we're, we're talking about um, difference in population centers. You know, the mayors and the chiefs in Kansas City and St. Louis have been adamant prosecutors against this in terms of the danger required. Um, and those who are advocating for this bill happen to live in communities where they don't have the population, they don't have the level of violence that we do. I'm going to play a clip now from Senator Paul Whelan. He's a Republican from Jefferson County, and he is going to talk about the constituent reaction that he has received for this bill. Overwhelmingly, 
the number of emails and stuff coming into my office are in favor of doing the override. Okay. Okay. Now, I am getting a handful of people that are very passionately opposed to it, but when you look at the numbers, it's like maybe a 60-70 to 1 ratio. Okay. I mean... Um, 60 to 70 it, to 1. It's huge. I mean, there's... I can only count maybe five or six people that have contacted me saying, you know, this is a horrible idea. You need to stand with the governor. Mm -hmm. But we probably have 500 emails maybe already. Now, there's a reason I picked that clip because he talked a, a lot about this bill is that I have noticed the NRA has gotten involved and they are having a very public campaign to try to get this overridden, which may explain partially why Senator Whelan got so many pro Senate Bill 656, which is the number um, that he mentioned in this clip. I'm not sure if that's going to make a difference for people in heavily Democratic districts like you or many of your other Democratic colleagues, but for people who are in swing districts where it may matter, um, it could. What do you kind of make of that? Well, you know, when people talk about, you know, they've gotten a, a ratio of emails, I mean, that, that to me, that that's a false, that's false polling. Um, you know, I get a rash of emails. I might get, you know, probably more that are progressive Democrats than those that are more conservative just because of the, my district. Um, and yet, though, I'm in a more populated area, too, than, than some of these, uh, where gun violence is a reality. I mean, all kinds of gun violence, from domestic violence to suicide to accidental shootings with little kids pulling the weapon or pulling the trigger. Um, gun violence is actually very real. And, of course, um, in Senator Whelan's district, he's seeing less gun violence, and he's also— um, you know, actually ignoring, <laughs> if you want to talk about public opinion, then let's go to the, the, the polling that's been done over and over in Missouri that says over 80% of Missourians want universal background checks on every gun sale. No, so if he's going to legislate and determine his vote based on, on polling, which again, emails coming in is really a, a type of, you know, um, unofficial polling, then his argument doesn't doesn't ring true. Um, he is not addressing the idea that this bill um, will surely cost lives. Law enforcement has said it. We know this in terms of um, other states that have passed uh, stand your ground measures. You know, we, we know from Florida, um, particularly. You know, since that uh, bill went into that law went into effect, their their rates have have skyrocketed. So if you're gonna if he's gonna base you know his vote on popular opinion, which again, getting a few emails is, uh, then I would think that he would also, by that same theory, you know, be in favor of universal background checks. Well, the contention he, that um, he was saying was that criminals are going to get guns no matter what. And he says all these rules and regulations and training and everything simply affect the law-abiding people who wouldn't be breaking the law anyway. And that it was unfair to burden them with all these restrictions when uh, criminals weren't going to be dealing with it. Um, how do you counter something like that? Because well, I'm sure he's not the only Republican making that argument. Well, yeah, these are these are common arguments that we hear. Uh, I would I would counter with then why are we making any laws? You know, as a legislator, I'm completely wasting my time if people who you know those criminals are just going to go out and break them. So I don't know why I should be wasting my time even going to veto session if that's the case. <laughs> that's a good point. But at, at the same time, you know, when we've got uh, 
like I said, law enforcement, domestic violence advocates, you know, we've got the medical community, we have got um, everyone who actually deals and is affected by gun violence. And again, in terms of population, you're going to see that more in our urban, suburban, um, you know, centers just because of population. So his argument in terms of, well, criminals are always going to break the law, well, you're really not a criminal until you shoot somebody just because in our state we have one of the few states of the you know few lax laws gun laws in the country so anyone can get a weapon i can do it without a background check and i'm not a felon until i shoot you so if there's a way to prevent me from you know killing someone i would think that you know as uh, a decent legislature that's what we should be doing we should be you know working with our medical community working with law enforcement you know we should be saving lives instead of making it easier for people to have access to weapons what's your sense of what's going to happen um well number one my first sense is i'm hoping that i i actually get to speak on the floor the last two days of session i was prevented by the speaker from even you know, representing my district and being part of the debate. So, um, number one, I, I hope that I'm able to participate in terms of, you know, um, arguing against uh, these measures, or I guess for the veto. Um, and but in terms of the actual votes, um, it's it's going to be uh, really really hard, I think, for us to actually you know sustain the vetoes. I want to talk a more of a long-term question because the reason we've been having this discussion is the governor vetoed this bill just as he vetoed the quote-unquote gun nullification bill a few years mm -hmm. ago. And while I'm sure that there are bills that Governor Nixon has signed which you don't agree with, he's obviously picked and choose which firearm bills he wants to be in law and which to veto. And he's not afraid to, you know, take the heat, so to speak. I'm going to play a clip now from Attorney General Chris Coster, who is your nominee for your, your party. and um, For governor. For governor. And he has been endorsed by the NRA in the past, in 2012, when he ran against Ed Martin. And I asked him at a recent campaign stop whether he would be uh, acceptable or proud to receive that endorsement against Republican Eric Greitens in the governor's race. Here is his full answer. So it's very possible you may get the endorsement over him. Would that be something you'd be proud of? I don't. I'm. Uh, I would. Uh, I would look forward to receiving the endorsement. I'm trying to build a big tent uh, party here, and I'm trying to bring this state together. Um, and as I've said in in many uh, places, rural Missouri wants to see small and conservative government, uh, small and fiscally conservative government. They want individual rights respected, including the Second Amendment. But then they want what everybody else wants in this state, which is they want schools funded, they want roads fixed, and they want health care to stop close, shutting its doors and, and, and leaving their communities. That is a group of principles that I uh, feel comfortable around. And there is going to be debate and back and forth in the Democratic Party around that, but that is where I am. And maybe for a, you know, a different time, would bring a different leader, but in this time, uh, this is the path that I will walk. Now, now, one one thing I want to say: a couple years ago, there I think during the gun nullification—I mean, this bill that was going to nullify federal gun laws and some other stuff—Coster did come out against it, and right after a lot of the big um, uh, law enforcement groups did as well. On this on this one, he's been 
pretty quiet. Yeah. Unless I've missed something. And I also want to point out because I wrote about that extensively. The NRA was completely silent on that bill, and that silence I think was purposeful because I don't think they actually supported it. That's my theory. You've probably heard something similar. Yeah, but what I'm saying is this time it looks like Coster isn't going to say anything, um, even if he may or may not have objections to certain um, provisions. Have you or, you know, because you're pretty active in the state party. Have there been discussions about this, about, um, I mean, are you comfortable with this as far as Coster stands versus yours? Well, um, I, number one, I, I totally d- disagree with the attorney general. Um, I've been, you know, at odds with the gun lobby, you know, for the past 16 years. And I believe to, um, you know, I, I actually agree with the law enforcement and, and prosecutors. And like I mentioned, physicians, and I can just go down the road in terms of all the people that believe that we have got to find ways to stop the gun violence that we already have. Um, And again, it's more than just what people want to call, you know, drive-by urban violence. This is domestic violence. This is, uh, you know, mass shootings. This is in schools. This is suicides. This is little kids pulling the trigger because guns are available in their home. There's all of these things, and they go back to human lives. And I just work with too many survivors around the country who are now my close friends who are have taken up this same fight because they do not want this to happen to other people. And so I look at this issue. This is more than a political um, argument. This mm-hmm. is more than just, you know, a bill that we bring up in presidential election years. Right. And this is really about human life. And if the gun lobby, NRA, attorney general, whoever wants to be at the table and say, okay, yes, we've, you know, we've sold enough weapons, the gun industry is doing just fine. What can we do together to actually save these lives? And, you know, we ask, you know, um, you know, you mentioned being involved in the party. I was at the, you know, uh, in the national convention here in, in, you know, Philadelphia, you know, Mayor Sly James spoke to the Missouri delegation and he actually, again, this was a statewide delegation. People from all of our congressional districts were there and he actually blasted, gave the strongest um, speech I have heard on gun violence in Kansas city. Mm-hmm. And it is um, his responsibility as our own mayor and chiefs and prosecutors to keep people alive and I understand the frustration. I understand the being political um, in certain parts of the state. But I want to remind people, there's gun violence everywhere. And it, it affects all of us, and it might have to affect all of us. Well, there's a reason, though, why I brought this up. Because, yes, there is the political component. But I think there's a policy effect of somebody getting endorsed by the NRA. If they want to keep that endorsement for reelection, they're basically going to have to conform to what the group or the members believe. And it seems like that means if Coster becomes governor, first of all, any restrictions on firearms that you or your colleagues propose are are just not going to become law if he vetoes them. Or two, if the legislature puts forward even more extensions that we see right now, the chances are pretty high he's going to sign it. I mean, well, those those have to be concerns to oh, you. Oh, I'm extremely concerned. I'm extremely disappointed, um, and I'm I'm fearful. I actually am because what what this bill that we're facing veto session, let alone you know any type of you know what we're going to see next year and the year after, uh, is really about it's it's going to cause more loss of life 
to gun violence because no one is talking about those simple things, things that came down from the National White House Gun Violence Initiative, things that 80% of Missourians agree with, like universal background checks. Let's make sure everyone who is, you know, buying a weapon should have one because we know there are certain people that shouldn't. And just to be fair, because I want to make this clear, um, if Eric Greitens becomes governor, I, I think the same scenario is going to unfold because I think that he and Coster have very similar views. So I'm not just trying to single out Coster on guns, on guns but I just want to make it clear, like I'm using Coster as an example because it's going to be pretty much the same scenario, even if the Democrat wins. But I do want to move on because the other thing that we're going to be talking about in veto session is a photo identification requirement for voting. Now, as we've said in previous shows, there's a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would authorize the statutory bill that is kind of at play here. I'm sure there's going to be litigation to try to knock down these things. Maybe not. I don't know. But, Joe, before we get into the nitty-gritty, could you just kind of explain what the implementation bill does? Okay. What the implementation bill does is set out exactly what form, for example, what forms of identification would be allowed at the polls. They would have to have a photo ID, but it's not just any photo ID. It's a government-issued photo ID. So it basically limits it to just a few types. Um, They're talking about driver's licenses. They're talking about passports. They're talking about uh, military uh, licenses. And there's been some talk about, like, congressional or, you know, government, if there's if there's a photo. And, and it has to have an expiration date. Mm-hmm. And um, so because that, that issue has come up before. Um, unless things change, um, some states allow student IDs. This mm-hmm. one does not. Um, some allow home let, let's say homeowners association IDs. This one does not. So this only allows about three or four types of photo IDs. And um, it, what it does do, though, there had been some contention because in order to get these IDs, you have to get your um, birth certificates. You ha- and in many cases, older people don't have a birth certificate because they were born at home. Or if people have lost it or whatever, they have to apply to the health department where they were born to get it. And um, so in many cases, you have to pay a fee, $15, $20, $30. So there had been a contention this was really a poll tax. So this does have a provision that would pay for those kinds of things. Now, how that mechanism would work is unclear. But the result is that there are some provisions in it. There's also one that would still allow people, if they show up at the polls without an ID, they could cast a provisional ballot. And there seems to be some sort of wiggle room, possibly, on whether or not if they're recognized by the poll workers. So there are some who have said that this implementation bill has is a little more friendlier to Democratic concerns than previous ones that Governor Nixon has vetoed. I'm interested in your take on this particular version because I've heard some Democrats privately say, well, this one may be the best we can get. I'm just interested in your thoughts on this. Well, first of all, you explained it very well, and it is a two-parter. On its face, if, you know, if this bill is 
um, you know, becomes law on its face, it's unconstitutional. Right. Because back in, you know, 2006, the, you know, a, a similar photo ID uh, bill was sent to the Supreme Court, and Supreme Court ruled in 20, 2006 that uh, it's unconstitutional based on our right of suffrage in our Missouri state constitution. That's why we which is, have this, this right, proposed amendment on six, the ballot. Right. So first of all, whatever we're doing with this bill here is unconstitutional on its face until we actually, if voters decide to change the constitution. Very important detail, but Definitely. Continue. So right now, um, and also it's nice to know that our state constitution has a much stronger right of suffrage, even stronger than the U.S. Constitution. Which again, like you mentioned, um, you know, in the previous case, the Supreme Court did say that those underlying documents, which you know we passed after 9/11, because anybody was getting driver's licenses, uh, it's much more stringent and they cost money. You know, if you've changed your name, you have to go and get, you know, bring in that original documentation from your marriage or divorce decree, whatever. So, so those are all like the the you know, the stuff in the weeds, but then the major, to me, the major issue is this is not needed. This is not, there is no purpose for us to be changing the rules to require a state-issued, you know, photo ID in order to vote. No one has come up with why do we need to do this. Um, on its face, this bill would cost, uh, you know, for the first year, $17 million uh, just in the state. Um, again, like you said, there's no, nothing written in the bill. Like, how do we, how do people actually get their costs covered? There's no mechanism. Um, so it's confusing. Do you need it? Do you not need it? Um, you know, why all of a sudden do we have to have this in order to vote? There's no answers. Now, I want to just mention to our listeners, we're recording this on Wednesday, and this is going to be posted on Tuesday. So some we're, we're not going to get into super specific depth on this particular case because it might change. But I do know from today, because what I'm talking about is the Bruce Franks, Penny Hubbard situation with absentee ballots. I have already seen Republicans use that as an argument for photo ID. But as Joe has mentioned many times, there is nothing in this bill that deals with absentee balloting. And there's nothing, I think, in the constitutional amendment that deals with absentee no, balloting. No, absolutely yeah. nothing. So none of this and would affect this court fight or previous ones. I mean, frankly, fights over absentee ballots, accusations of absentee ballot fraud goes back. I mean, if, just from my career, goes. I recall covering that in the 70s. So this is not new. The fact that there's a fight over whether or not there was fraudulent um absentee ballots cast or or uh, pressure on people to vote a certain way with their absentee ballots. The But the issue is, pass this law, pass the constitutional amendment, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but I'm just saying it will not deal with absentee ballots at all. Exactly, because as you all know, the election um, statutes, you know, that whole chapter is quite huge. It's like saying that, you know, stealing cars is the same thing as shooting someone. Well, it's totally different. We have, the, you know, our election chapter is huge. And again, absentee ballots and those regulations and who gets, you know, how you get the application and what you have to do is has nothing to do with in-person voting. Now, in-person voting, like say going back to requiring a photo ID, is all based on the theory that there is in-person election day fraud. However, no cases have ever surfaced. <laughs> and, you know, Republicans around the country, Republican leaders have said over and over that this voter ID proposal is is designed to actually suppress 
certain people from voting. Um, we know that the elderly, the disabled, like you mentioned, out-of-state college students who do not have a Missouri driver's license and no reason to get one while they're here. Um, you know, we talk about transgender, low-income people who live, um, you know, in urban settings, don't need to have a car if you use public transportation. There's a whole segment of population that may be affected with voter ID. And again, there's no reason to change the rules. Now, the the implementation bill, uh, and I think the Constitutional Amendment as well, proposal, does stipulate that, you know, they estimate how much it's going to cost state government to implement this. The first year. The The first first year. year. And, but my point is, if if the money isn't allocated, it can't be put into effect. Exactly, because the implementation bill separately. Yeah, in the implementation bill, it makes clear. Well, here's the other here's the other thing to remember. First, to make this bill that we're talking about a veto session to make it even legal, then voters would have to amend our constitution to allow it. Number one, which won't happen until November, or their chance to. So once, if the constitution is changed to allow voter ID, just remember. Legislature can come back at any time and alter how a photo ID proposal would work. So those that say, well, the bill that we got this year, there's some compromise in it. You know, they say they're going to help people with the underlying documents, even though there's no way to do it, um, et cetera, et cetera. To me, that, that's, that's phony because they could come back next January and totally change you know, if you have enough votes, you can, you know, uh, yeah, but wouldn't there change might, it. Yeah, but might there be legal fights if they did that as far as uh, tossing out the state payments to cover for these? Well, Lumber, uh, like you said, we would ideas. have to appropriate that cost. You tell me which program you want us to take $17 million from. Mm-hmm. That's just an estimated cost. And then, again, we would have to set up a program somehow to actually make sure that people could turn in those underlying documents and get reimbursed. Right now, there's no way for them to do it. So again, we're throwing all these numbers around. What we do know is there's about 220,000 current voters, people who are already voters, who do not have a state-issued driver's or non-driver's license. Those 220,000, if this was number one, to become constitutional and become law, would no longer be able to vote for no other reason than Republican Party, which has been a partisan issue around the country, decided to change the rules. Do you, and going quickly back to the absentee ballot situation, and we're looking forward to 2017, after what has occurred in the Franks Hubbard situation, especially this, the fact that because of a judge's decision, absentee ballot applications are now public record, as well as you know, maybe making absentee balloting less stringent, maybe making no excuse absentee balloting, those that things have been discussed. As someone who has been in a challenging election before and who studies election law very closely, do you see legislative action coming from that situation that, A, may make it harder for absentee ballot applications to become public, or B, maybe making it easier for people to vote absentee based off that situation? Um, Sure, because we've already seen those efforts to restrict certain people from being able to vote. This would be just, you know, the next step. But every, I've been the ranking Democrat on House Elections Committee. I'll be going now into my eighth year um, on that. I expect to be on that committee once again. Um, We'll have a new chair. And usually when we see our, our, our first bills that are filed are usually because of a current situation or something that's popular, you know, let's come in and let's try to fix something. 
a lot of times we try to do that because we have municipal elections coming up in March and April that, you know, if there's something that really needs to be fixed, those kind of our deadlines. So, um, sure, I would expect, I don't know what it would be because we obviously don't know yet from this situation um, what happened or what was wrong, met, what was right. I we met, don't know. I mentioned the absentee ballot applications being public records because I could see the argument for them remaining public records because we just had a post-dispatch story that used that and uncovered a whole lot of things. The The other side, though, is if you have a close election and they're a public record and people are able to find out who voted in a Democratic primary and where they live, I could see a scenario where people on one side are going to people and potentially harassing them into saying they voted absentee for the wrong reason. Have you heard that type of argument? Because I've certainly heard that argument from a lot of pro-Hubbard people and anti-Hubbard people. Well, I, I would think that could be possible depending on the type of campaign that's run. But people should know, too, that your voter record is public record. We don't know how you voted. We know that you voted, I mean, which is really how we all start with in terms of we only deal with frequent voters mm-hmm. since we don't have campaign time to reach everyone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on that argument, you know, and people don't know that right now your voter record is public. I have your name and address if you were yeah, a registered voter. Yeah, it just doesn't state which party in the primary, but, but I that know, could change. But I also know, yes, when you last voted mm-hmm. and how often you voted, That's those true. kind of things. So, um, again, on an absentee ballot, um, we're kind of going in some new territory here. Um, and I'm going to have to wait to yeah. see what, what comes out of everything. Now, Republicans traditionally have not gone after absentee ballots. And one of the reasons is, and I'm going to get some Republicans mad at me, but it's because absentee ballots are used a lot in rural Missouri. They're used a lot because in many cases people live long distances from where they uh, can vote. So they either like vote when they're in town. I mean, there's things they do in order to get, or they vote by mail, they send in their application. So my point is there have been some estimates. Uh, Secretary of State Robin Carnahan did a study several years ago when, when she was in office, and it was roughly equal, the number of Democratic and Republican uh, votes that were f- from absentees. So the, so the estimation was that probably in a general election, it was roughly equal as well. Well, because of that, some have contended that's why Republicans, while they blast voter fraud, have not gone after absentee ballots because it's used a lot by their constituents, Well, and there's different programs. I think we're seeing here talk about um, a disabled elderly program that once you're in it, you know, you are, you know, and you voted. um, I know there's some stipulation you have to vote once or twice. I think even an absentee ballot, you have to vote in person the first time you vote, so you actually know that you're real. Um, and after that, so these elderly disabled can also join this program where they automatically, every election, get that ballot mailed to them. They don't have to go through the two-step with the application. But we have tried. Um, you know, one of my uh, Democrat members has tried for a couple of years just to pass no excuse. Mm-hmm. Um absentee voting, whether you're voting by mail or voting in person, because if you do look at those, uh, you know, excuses that are on the, you know, the the absentee ballot, again, whether you're voting at the election board or by mail, you know, it doesn't cover everything. 
you know, the biggest thing is, do you expect not to be in your district on election day? And, you know, many people have to say, I don't know, particularly if you're, you know, your job is fluid or, or medical reasons or all kinds of things. And so we have asked, can we just make that no excuse? Because, like you said, this is not a partisan issue in terms of voting early. People need to do it. You know, we've also tried to advance early voting, you know, let the voting process start, you know, a couple of days earlier. So those people who do need to vote absentee can actually do that in person. And again, we've we've stalled there. So it looks real clearly that um, there's no efforts to actually make voting easier, but it these voter ID proposals, it's to make voting harder from our majority party. So it's going to be really interesting to see what we talk about in terms of the, you know, our election committee in terms of what comes out of, of this situation here with, with this in, uh, you know, with this race. But, you know, at, at the same time, um, you know, to, to, to jump real quickly and to make, you know, an unknown situation partisan or to make it, you know, you know, blame the Secretary of State or to do all of this. To me, this is kind of um, kind of childish. You know, we first need to find out what the facts and the details are. And then if a statute needs to be fixed or if we need to, you know, whatever we need to do, that's what we need to do at that point. Now, before we go into politics, do you think that the implementation bill will be overridden? I mean, yeah, the veto of the implementation yes. bill. Right. And I know you keep calling it an implementation bill, yes, and that's kind of, yeah, to think about, yes. Um, I, it, as a partisan issue, not just in Missouri, around the country, and, you know, uh, Democrats being in the super minority in both the House and the Senate, it's pretty easy to predict that, yes, it will be overridden. But it'll be up to voters to decide whether it becomes law. because Well, it becomes constitutional because right now, you know, that's what it I can't mean. become law because it's illegal. Yeah, that, and that I admittingly said that in a very shorthand way. When I say it becomes law, it will be technically become law, but if the Constitution – amendment doesn't pass, it's automatically unconstitutional and it'll be because we already know it because we know this bill right now on its face is unconstitutional. So so let's kind of delve into politics a little bit. Joe, we'll we'll, we'll go there. Yeah. Now, you're also active in the local Hillary Clinton effort. I ran into you at the grand opening of the office just a few blocks from here. Um, I've been covering a lot of the different statewide races from Senate on down. And one of the Republican hopes, and this was expressed even in Cleveland, was that their hope is that Donald Trump is really going to help whip up turnout among the base or among people, uh, blue-collar, working-class men um, in particular, who often have not necessarily voted. And so they're thinking that this could actually help their candidates from Roy Blunt on down. I'm interested in your take as I said, the Republicans are hoping that Blunt, car- I mean that um, Trump carries the state by possibly double digits. Uh, the polls recently have shown it much closer than that. I'm just interested in your take on how does Clinton have similar coattails, or is it either pro-Trump or anti-Trump? Just interested in your thoughts. Um, well, what I'm seeing is is definitely pro or anti-Trump, but at the same time, I'm concerned, um, not just as a citizen, but as a legislator. You know, so many of the um, you know policies that Donald Trump is running on. Um, actually scare me in terms of, you know, we're seeing this week this real big push with Mexico, the anti-immigration, you know, kick in terms of, uh, and what I've seen in legislature that that anti-immigration, you know, movement is kind of tampered down, which 
to me is really based on on hatred. It's based on racism. It's based on bigotry. Uh, you know, we don't immigration has not been a big issue in our state, and yet we're seeing some of these issues rise to the top. So I worry what his campaign, Donald Trump's campaign, actually represents. Um, what is what we're going to see in terms of how people vote. You know, do they believe in his bigotry and his racism and sexism and all of these things that most of us find really, really ugly and do not want in the White House? So when you say coattails, I'm concerned about those attitudes. Um, those attitudes will stay whether, you know, people win or lose. Um, and they're going to have some some long term effects, I believe, in the legislature. How energized are local Democrats? I mean, because one of the problem is is if you're not excited about your candidate, and I've heard you, you hear various things about whether people are excited about Clinton or not, um, or if it's, as you referenced, a big anti-Trump movement. What are you hearing, though, in Democratic circles in your district, which is overwhelmingly Democratic? Just what are you hearing? Are, are people energized to vote for her and not for him? Or, I mean, are the Sanders people coming over? What are you hearing? Well, I think it's still, you know, you, you hear that the general election really doesn't begin until Labor Day. And right here in Missouri, since we've got veto session, you know, that comes on the heels of Labor Day. So we have all these things to kind of get through, I think, before people turn their complete attention back to the general election. Um, you know, we know that, that you know, sure. Latest polling shows that, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are almost neck and neck in Missouri, which is kind of new for Missouri. Um, I was on the John Kerry staff or campaign back in 2004. We were never up, um, you know, in that race. And, and then after that, we've lost the status of being a battleground state. You know, we're back to, you know, current polling shows us we're almost even, which means that, you know, more people um, – are favoring uh, the Democrat presidential nominee, you know, in, in the last, what, 12 years? Yeah. This is kind of new. So it, a lot depends, I think, on what happens with, you know, Donald Trump's campaign, what's going to happen in the next two months. Um, the debates. Know, the, the fact debates. that the, the fact that Washington University here in St. Louis will be hope, hosting the second debate. Hopefully. Well, well, let's not get into that. But Donald Trump actually shows up, but continue. Right. Well, <laughs> we're trusting that he will. My point being is that the debates often are yet another reset button, you know, once the debate well, season and starts. Well, we always hear what about the October, October surprise. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Maybe that debate is it. WikiLeaks. Who knows? <laughs> but I, I, I don't mean to be too conspiratorial, but when he was complaining about the debates coinciding with football, it did plant the seed in my mind right, that, that he may not actually go through with it. might be a little more but, important but, but to continue. him. Right. But I think, you know, we've always seen, I mean, who can predict going back the last, you know, several hot presidential, you know, races, what happens in those last two months? Um, this is something I do know. Uh, we will see another mass shooting in the States. We've had too many. There will be more um, if we have a you know, now I call it the plane crash theory. The, you know, the fatalities have to be a higher and higher number for people to, you know, pay attention, to be affected. Um, we will be seeing more of those. Um, and whether whatever effect that has on voters in terms of, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton running for gun violence prevention, Donald Trump, you know, um, again, telling everyone they need to be armed. Um, it's there's there's so many things that, that can happen in these in these next two months after Labor Day. Uh, and what that does to energize voters, it's it's going to be hard to say. I think right now, 
people really believe that Donald Trump is is the wrong person to be sitting in, in the White House. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for coming. This is our first time in person. The last time we did it through the magic of radio in Jefferson City. Uh, yes, I like being in person I like better. Do, I like doing, kind of fun. I like doing it in person better like as well. I like seeing what you guys really look like <laughs> yeah. at the time. Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> we are actual people, not holograms. For all of our stories, <laughs> stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on Twitter? Stacey Newman, S-T-A-C-E-Y, N-E-W-M-A-N, Facebook, Twitter. I'm pretty active. I live tweet the session and committee hearings when I can. And thank you very much for having me on. Let's go veto session. All right. Go veto session. We'll be back some other time. Until then, so long. <laughs>